Hello, and welcome back to All Rings Considered, a read-through The Lord of the Rings. Um, today is a big day. We are on Book 6, Chapter 1, The Tower of Kirith Ungol. Woohoo. Charlie, this is a, yeah, it's actually a really big step. Um, I'm pretty excited. This is a great chapter. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we are almost at the end. Uh, book 6, this, here it is. So it's all, it all comes down to this. Yeah. Um, so we are back uh, following Sam and Frodo. Um, and a summary for today. Um, so, uh, Sam is, as you may recall, is, uh, at the base of a tower. Well, he is at a door entering into a tower, um, of Kirith Ungol. And he is, Frodo has been taken into this tower by the orcs. Um, and Sam has heard that Frodo is actually alive. So Sam has resolved to rescue Frodo. He, uh, stops on he has to find a new way to get inside so he is going around and he enters into a section where he's about to actually enter into mordor proper and he has some uh thoughts and about entering into mordor and he overcomes his fears and he makes it all the way to the tower and he sees that their uh orcs have been quarreling and so there are two factions of orcs that seem to have been killing each other um and on his way into the tower he enters into a gate where there are these two hideous monster statues that are called the watchers and they prevent him from coming in but he uses the file of gladriel to subdue their power uh, long enough for him to make it inside he is mistaken for an elvish lord uh by the orcs uh as perhaps a, a side effect of both sting and him being in possession of the wandering but he uh manages to make it up to uh the top of the tower where he finds uh frodo and he wakes up frodo uh and they make their way out uh Kirith Ungol. the end the end book over uh no book but over. chapter yeah. over uh actually wait you yeah maybe we should just go ahead and say this the chapter itself ends with a slight cliffhanger that's uh, right yeah. yeah so it's uh a so Nazgul they go back out through the watchers again yeah. and as they go out um there's a huge crash and the gate comes comes down and there's a wailing in the sky yeah uh yeah not a Nazgul is coming uh it seems and so that's intense. I like that this chapter is a nice, satisfying resolution to the cliffhanger from book four. If you had been reading this in publication, you know, you, you had to feel pretty good that, you know, uh, how this turned out, turned out, I think. Um, I don't think mm -hmm. it's too disappointing. And I think that's hard. It can often be hard for like stories, whether they're books or TV shows or movies to sort of resolve cliffhangers satisfactorily. But I think he does here. Recall, listeners, that book four ended with the line of uh, Frodo was alive but taken by the enemy, and then book five reminded of this, reminded us of this when mouth the mouth of Sauron has Frodo's things and says he's going to be tortured and killed. That's right. Uh, and so we've been waiting to see what happened, and here's what happened, and I think it's a good conclusion. Uh, Sam has rescued him, and we are off into Mordor. But yes, yeah, cool things going on in this chapter. Uh, where do you want to start, Pip? Well, I, I just want to mention what you just said. Yeah, I didn't go back, um, and I had no trouble. I mean, granted, we've like yeah, interacted yeah. with this text for a large part of our life, but um, we've been reading this slowly. And so the last time that we actually were with Frodo and Sam, that was months ago. Um, That's true, yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, it does. the book does a really nice job of easing you back into it without being sort of too um, uh, like expository. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess one thing I'll mention theme-wise um, about this chapter that I think is really cool, it is an example of catabasis. Um, so it is a it is a trip to the underworld for Sam. 
Um, yeah. I actually think it's really neat because he's actually going up into a tower, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of a fun uh, spin on that. But um, many different myths um, and popular stories have this sort of uh, this theme, something like Pinocchio or Luke Skywalker going into the Death Star to save sure. his father are popular examples. But you see that throughout. Think about like a... You know, I think Aeneas in the Aeneas father, yeah, is a big one. Uh, Heracles rescues Theseus. Odysseus uh, goes down there, uh, yeah, in the Odyssey briefly. So this, this is a common thing. So we can keep Sam, going. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we <laughs> could go forever, right? Um, but this uh, this is Sam's. His master is Frodo, right? So a lot of people forget that Frodo is a somewhat father figure to to Sam, right? Yeah, right. And so this is him rescuing him from hell, more or less. Uh, mm-hmm. On that note of hell, it, you know, something I was thinking about recently because I'm watching this uh, Netflix Dark Crystal series, which is like a sequel series to a Jim Henson movie from the 80s. And it's all very surreal and very dreamlike. And, you know, made me realize, oh, you know what? I always feel like Tolkien's worlds are very dreamlike. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that's sort of weird because he's actually praised for these detailed worlds, right? That with the real history. We've talked on this podcast about how he infuses real historical sort of aesthetics to make it feel a little realer but actually i feel like a lot of times when he describes the landscapes they actually are sort of dreamlike and i get that a lot here in this chapter with the descriptions of mordor and of mount doom mm-hmm. uh i really feel that so i mean like listen to some of these hold on let me read this uh, it talks about uh almost straight ahead across a wide lake of darkness dotted with tiny fires there was a great burning glow and from it rose in huge columns a swirling smoke dusty red at the roots black above where it merged into the billowing canopy that roofed in all the accursed land. Sam was looking at Ordruin, the mountain of fire. So that's Mount Doom. Mm-hmm. It talks about how Mount Doom, there's a great surging and throbbing. It will pour forth rivers of molten rock from chasms in its sides. And it says some would wind their way into the stony plain until they cooled and lay like twisted dragon shapes vomited from the tormented earth. Really cool stuff. And yeah, um... I get that a lot with Mordor, like yeah, dreamlike absolutely. kind of feeling. And we even saw it in book four when we were with Frodo and Sam last. You and I talked about the sort of ash heaps uh, Tolkien talks about outside of Mordor and, of course, the dead marshes and things. And it just feels very dreamlike and very surreal. And I appreciate that. It does not feel very gritty. It doesn't feel like I could actually ever be there or that any such place could actually exist. And I'm okay with that. I think it's good. And I think it plays into your take on this as a sort of uh, descent into hell. Uh, right. kind of thing uh it really is even like sort of physically um or it's a place without day yeah right and so it's uh which is important it's important right. actually yeah we thematically it's important right that this is a place without day sun you can't see the sun it's not gonna happen right it's kind of a darker version of c.s lewis's um uh land without christmas Sort of, uh, sure, when yeah. the, you're right. Uh, yeah. This is a this is a land without actually the sun. Which shout out to C.S. Lewis for that. Uh, totally, that that were really far afield, I know. But shout out, I always thought that was one of the uh, better children's literature phrasings, right? That the right. the animals are all horrified when they go to Narnia. There's no Christmas, <laughs> but that's the worst. <laughs> that that's the thing. That's the problem. Uh, but that works really well for a children's book. That, that's a great book. Classic, classic book. Um, anyway, other books, uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, another thing um, I thought was great at the beginning um, of this chapter that kind of tied into the um, ending of last chapter was this yeah. um, thematic element of forgotten identity, um, okay. where last chapter 
I commented on how the um, the name of the mouth of Sauron had been forgotten, and he himself had mm. perhaps forgotten his own name, um, and in a way that's sort of like, you know, the power of Mordor and evil being consumed by by that has you know erased his identity. Um, there is a line here, two lines, Sam for Sam. He was in a land of darkness where the days of the world seemed forgotten and where all who entered were forgotten too. And then there's a line where discussing uh, how actually Frodo and Sam were not forgotten because their friends still remembered them. They couldn't help them, but they were not actually forgotten. Um, And so there's kind of this nice tying into that here. Yeah, that's a great line, great bit. I love, too, at this very beginning, as long as we're sort of here, there's this one little reference to Sauron being full of doubt uh maybe not mm. full of doubt but at least having some doubt i think this is really interesting that uh sam says that he can feel the eye of mordor in its malice but that the eye of mordor apparently the shadows in its own land are hindering it in its unquiet and doubt i think that's really interesting uh, sauron is doubtful we don't often get insight into his own psyche usually when we do it's gandalf saying Here's what Sauron is like, and this is one of the few times the narrator seems to step in and say it. Or perhaps it's just Sam's own intuition, which would be a really interesting if we got that. But uh, it, it's it's an interesting little moment there that that he would be full of doubt like that. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, think and I guess it, it makes sense, too. Like, there's got to be on some level. I was kind of hitting at this a little bit last chapter at the end of book uh, five there, mm-hmm. where I point out that the mouth of Sauron trying to bribe... Uh, the men of Gondor, Rohan, with Frodo, couldn't have really rang true because he calls Frodo a spy. And there's no way if he actually had gotten Frodo in the ring that he would consider Frodo a spy. Mm-hmm. You know, he would consider him a ring lord <laughs> at that point. It, it just wouldn't, it just, there's no way. So there's some like unknown elements here in Sauron's mind, as well as in, the, I guess I really should say, there's unknown, there's unknown elements here on both sides. The men can't realize how full of doubt Sauron is. Sauron himself has to be sitting here and wondering, like, where is this stupid ring? Because if it, he knows it's been found, but nobody's using it. Mm-hmm. And it, that's got to just baffle him <laughs> in so many ways, right? Right. Um, this chapter does clarify for us that at this moment, um, Aragorn is leading the Black Fleet, the Black Sailed Fleet, up the river. Uh, so the Siege of Pelennor Fields is in full swing. Uh, so maybe Sauron might be anticipating some things to come there uh, and has some doubt as a result. But uh, it, it's just a, it's an interesting reminder to us that this mission is just so so stealthy that sort of neither side knows quite what's happening here with the ring, uh, yeah. including Sauron himself. So on both sides of this war, Frodo's journey is not understood, right? So it's not public knowledge to anyone what Frodo's role is here. Okay. Right, so, you know, encountering Faramir, for example, that was a big deal to actually tell him what his quest was. Yeah, right, um, yeah. It, it's just, it's worth noting with Sauron's confusion and his own doubt because he knows the ring would tempt anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So so this succeeds because, and this just, this relates to you pointing out uh, the mystery of the quest in a way that the, the quest is a mystery only be, not only because people don't actually know what's happening, uh, and some can't know and has to be stealthy, but also because they can't even comprehend it because Sauron knows that ring could corrupt anybody. It, it will. It will corrupt anybody. Uh, the wisest people know that too, of course. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but certainly the wisest. This whole thing is going to work, though, because the hobbits 
have such great resilience, such remarkable resilience to it. Hmm. Uh, and nobody, nobody knows that, right? Nobody, uh, Nobody gives the hobbits credit. For nobody gives. Their... They're not. They're not in the end song, right? <laughs> of yeah, the races. Nobody. Nobody cares about them. And what they do care about them, it's they're mistaking them for spies half the time. Whether your mouth was Sauron or whether your tree beard meaning Merry and Pippin, or even Faramir thought that too, right? I mean, right. It's, it, it, nobody gives them credit for the thing they're able to do. So the whole thing is a, is a, such a mystery in that way. To that end of hobbits being resilient, it's bec- it's got it, it's got to be because of their humility, right, and their own lack of pride. Sam here, the ring tempts Sam by trying to get him to imagine leading into Mordor, taking over and making a giant garden out of it. Mm-hmm. It's a very Hobbit-like thing to do, but it's really playing on Sam's own humility. You know, you like just gardening and stuff and taking care of plants. Can you imagine doing that in a big, giant space for everybody? Right. But in the end, it's even that can't work because yeah, he overcomes are so it. humble that he overcomes it by th- by realizing I just want my own personal garden and that's it. Right. And that's so they're the wild card that nobody's taken into account nobody's factored in we have been talking about this book sort of anti-traditional streak under the guise of an epic and I, I, this is this is a part of it that these the heroes of the story are deliberately not great and they're not powerful and they're not going to do big things and the only reason they're able to accomplish anything big is because they're the only ones who don't actually want to do it mm-hmm. yeah sam sam is mistaken for an elvish warrior here as well too yeah which is, uh, it's a great bit of irony right i mean right um, and it's funny because part of the irony being that a, uh, the elves are not doing what Sam's doing, right? So exactly. you're thinking like, oh, the, and they couldn't too, right? Right, they could not do what Sam's doing, could not yeah. overcome the ring in the same way that Sam did. Uh, exactly, yeah. And and they historically did were not able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the the idea of Sam being better than he is is like a elvish warrior is is funny because it's like, oh, the actual great thing is what Sam's doing now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a note on my note says structures going wrong. And so there are several points in this text where there are uh, instances of actual physical buildings, their intent being warped. Right. So right, yeah. um, we see here that I really love this reveal where um, here's the, the quote. As he gazed at it, suddenly Sam understood almost with a shock that this stronghold, Kirith Ungle, uh, this stronghold had been built not to keep enemies out of Mordor, but to keep them in. And realizing, oh, well, this is actually now a stronghold of of Sauron, right? And we see this before with um, uh, Saruman and how he has taken over um, the tower. And now it was, in, uh, it was a tower that could not be penetrated, right? And that at one point was a good thing, but now it's not. <laughs> um, mm. There are several instances where there are physical structures, but there's theme there too, which is that the, which is that the structures that we put into place of power, like the ring or this tower, are yeah. not good enough. Right. Yeah. So there, there isn't a set of rules uh, or a tradition that can be uh, incorruptible. Exactly. Right. So, and we even yeah. see sets of rules fail in previous chapters, where in Gondor, their set, their code of honor, right, to obey their captains, leads them to almost killing Faramir. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there are these structures that you put into that are put into place that cannot be. They're they're not good enough. Right. And they get misused. So yeah. there's here, and then there's also uh, in the reverse, Sauron's own darkness in Mordor is in- impeding his <laughs> search for the ring. While we're on it, uh, speaking of things failing and not lasting, 
this chapter is bringing really back to the forefront the big theme of book four. So you and I talked about book four as, at least as I argued it, that book four is is grappling with this question about what is supposed to be lasting. And it's, it's big on those this, this theme. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get as much that in book five, but we got a little bit. You and I had that discussion about Gimli and Legolas and their, their conversation about the deeds of men and how they will outlast uh, everything. So that's maybe their take on it. Maybe the deeds of men will outlast most things. But uh, we're back here in this chapter getting this theme explicitly uh, dealt with. And as you know, we're getting stuff like the Tower of Kirthongul didn't last. Uh, and it was its intended effect, right? And, but we're getting closer to the answer, if not outright there. Because Sam, even in this land of no daylight, Sam, uh, there, he does two things that I think are getting him close to the answer of what, what lasts, what endures. And first he sings his song when he has reached a dead end in the tower. And he doesn't realize that Frodo's in a room above the room he's in. And there seems mm-hmm. to be no entrance. It's actually a trap door in the ceiling. But he doesn't know that. So he's just lying there and he sings a song. And the song's interesting. But I think we should actually read the whole thing. Because you there's should. Two, there's two halves to it's it. It's one of the best. Yeah, and the two halves are worth... You got to hear both of them, I think, out here. So this is what Sam says. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring. The trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there may be tis cloudless night and swaying beaches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. So, the song's interesting. It starts actually with these things that I would say are not particularly lasting. Um flowers and trees you know flowers are rising in spring trees and trees budding in spring mm-hmm. that's uh you know these are things that you know will die in the winter that sort of thing so he's playing on that and then but he shifts then and then but he says or there may be cloudless night and elven stars and then he's just explicit about it above all towers above all shadows is the sun and the stars. Mm-hmm. So Sam's saying there's something, there is something out there that endures. Book four tried all kinds of things, you know, like whether it was the sort of buildings of mankind, whether it was uh, um, the that, that window on the west in Faramir's hideout with its beautiful sort of sunset. Um, but Sam is saying there is something out there here and it's just literally on a physical level it's the sun and the stars are still there right and he does a second thing though um he picks as his code word for with frodo he picks the word elbereth you know i'm not the, i'm not big on my silmarillion reading folks it has been decades <laughs> since i read it for now um for now <laughs> but uh do you know elbereth uh looked her up as well before doing this episode to make confirm my suspicions um, but I do know that she is associated with the stars and that she's one of the, the Valar, one of the great sort of celestial beings of this universe. And she's associated with light. She's associated with the stars. So he picks a word. He picks that word, right, as his code word of Frodo. But he doesn't even seem to know why, right? He, he, he says, you know, that's what the elves say. And it, you know, the orcs freak out about it and no orc would ever use it. Right. Uh, but he doesn't really know why. Uh, and we've so talked about that. So. A little yeah. bit before, uh, you know, stars being common symbols for hope, 
something mm-hmm. that's imperishable. Um, but I think there's a, kind of an interesting uh, connection here in this chapter. You mentioned how Legolas and Gimli talk about the deeds of men outlasting yeah. and something permanent about a deed, which sounds a little paradoxical because by its very definition, a deed is something you do and then it's over. Mm-hmm. It's a verb, right? But when Sam brings Frodo out past uh, to the watchers, the statues, um, as they're making their way out of the tower, um, it says that the uh, the file that he's using, uh, the file of Gladriel, which is a uh, sort of the light of a elvish exactly. star, yeah. um, glows the brightest, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's shown like uh, especially bright because of the deeds that Sam did. And so it's the oh, this hope is the continued actions of of men or you know, hobbits. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately the most important realization here is Sam recognizes that there is something permanent and enduring. Mm-hmm. Because book four just wasn't giving it, giving us anything. And uh, even if we don't know what that means yet. And I think that's important here too. This chapter is telling us through in sort of two rather oblique ways actually I would argue. Because I think one, a lot of people skip the songs or at least don't pay attention to them. And two, the Elbereth thing, you'd have to look it up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to see what it's getting at. Um, but in rather bleak ways, it's just sort of confirming, well, technically, things like the stars continue no matter what happens here on Earth. Obviously, I don't mean that in a sort of astronomical way of, <laughs> but right, like on our time scales, uh, they last. But that's all it's saying. I, you know, I, I think the chapter is careful to not necessarily dive into what that means mm-hmm. for us. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's putting the idea that there is something... Right. It's simply saying there's something out there. Exactly. That, that endures past this. That's important because I think we're going to get a, a deeper dive into what that might mean in future chapters here. So I just want to throw it out there that Tolkien is not revealing his whole hand yet, but he's very close. He's mm-hmm. very close to getting that like final conclusion, that final answer to that question that book four was so fixated on. And that really, I think the whole uh, Lord of the Rings book is focused on what can last yeah uh but before we get we're getting close to the end um i wanted to just pause and go back a little bit to the um the watchers because i always forget about the watchers but then every time i read this chapter this is one of my favorite parts um they are so creepy Mm -hmm. um and such a such a mystery so sam on his way into uh the tower there's a gate and there are he realizes that uh he can't go any farther. So he feels physically incapable of moving. Um, right. And he sees these two statues, the, the Watchers is what he calls them. The quote is, They were like great figures seated upon thrones. Each had three joined bodies and three heads facing outward and inward and across the gateway. The heads had vulture faces and on their great knees were laid claw-like hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is great because there's, um, I love how, little more description we get of the watchers besides what they do in this chapter they're just ominous one of the most ominous pieces in this book really in my opinion they i mean of course they have a sort of a cerberus vibe to them you know Mm -hmm. three headed beasts you know preventing you know guarding hell (laughs) but which is is sam is trying to rescue frodo yeah uh fantastic stuff there and i and i love just Part of the, the use of the file here, one of the great things about the way the Lord of the Rings is written is it's not it's not mechanical, right? So mm-hmm. 
there isn't a Sam realizes, oh yes, the I know the exact code word for these uh you know um these statues. This is exactly how they operate. The file is, you know, uh plus one goodness that beats the, you know, yeah, badness. Exactly, yeah. It's not no, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just that there's some mystery about these that is never and then they are destroyed at the end of this chapter. And so the mystery of who set those up, what were they, what, yeah. I mean, you know, I love it. Oh, one, another thing, uh, mentioned Severus. There's also a, um, another sort of classical thing here. Uh, mm-hmm. when Frodo, uh, wakes up and gets up and tries to move around, there's a quote, he stood up and it looked to Sam as if he was clothed in flame. His naked skin was scarlet and the light of the lamp above. Um, so Frodo was like, is Phoenix like here? Oh, nice. Yeah. Yes, uh, before we wrap up, we should just sort of, I think, pay lip service to a couple of things that are obvious in this chapter. So maybe they're not worth deep dives into here, but uh, we see a, the recurring theme of orcs always fighting with each other and mm-hmm. how evil is self-defeating. It can't ever organize on this kind of level that it needs to. Uh, it will always sort of devolve into civil war because that's inherent to what bad is. And then also shout out to the moment where Frodo... He's really mad at Sam for suggesting that right. he help with the ring, and he recognizes it though. Uh, so again, the ring as this tempting, controlling thing on Frodo's mind it shows up here in a, in a big way. Uh, but uh, but to overcome actually, yeah, but to overcome, right? Um, uh, and, which is sort of the running theme in in with the hobbits again, just to just to play on on that theme we mentioned earlier. They eat bread. Okay. So bread is uh, really strongly tied to symbolically to life. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. on their way out of the tower, they eat bread in a way of sort of resurrecting themselves. Mm-hmm. And in Tolkien's mind, perhaps took took mass, right? Uh, uh, right. It, yeah. Wonder, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's all I have. Yeah. Let's do. Let's uh, wrap things up here. Chapter title's boring. I have nothing to say about that. And uh, favorite line though, mine is actually you had read it before, but I'm going to read it again. It is. Uh, he was in a land of darkness where the days of the world seemed forgotten and where all who entered were forgotten too. Mm, that's really good. Um, good job, mine, Tolkien. Great job, Tolkien. Good job. Heck of, heck of a line. <laughs> um, mine is, In such an hour of labor, Sam beheld Mount Doom in the light of it, cut off from the high screen of the Ethel Duath from those who climbed up on the path from the west now glared against the stark rock faces so that they seem to be drenched with blood yeah such a good line again that dream like that dream like scenery here is just something to me yeah mordor was a really powerful image in my mind as a kid when i was first exposed to this book and as well as the adaptations this would be pre-Peter Jackson adaptations, though. I actually think Peter Jackson adaptations did a terrible job adapting Mordor because I don't think they do this at all, right? Like, they just make it very... It's too bright. They make it way too... Well, yeah, too bright. One, it's, you know, it's so bright as day there. It's ridiculous. And also, it's just, it's just real. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's it's too what real. it is. Uh, well, it is. I mean, this is yeah. permanent darkness. It's very surreal and dreamlike, and the Jackson ones are just so... It's exactly the thing I have a problem with in... in or the thing I was criticizing before and saying, wow, I'm sure I'm glad this book isn't like this. <laughs> um, where it's just like a real place. I'm like, oh, I could, yeah, it looks like a volcano. Like if you could actually go to a volcano, that's what it looks like. I don't know. Not a fan um, of that. Uh, that specific depiction, mind you, not the, right. not talking about the movies themselves. Uh, but yeah, it was such a big influence on my, on my, I don't know, imagination as a kid, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. in that anytime I am dealing with some kind of media that involves 
whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or anything that involves this kind of descent into hell theme, uh, Mordor is always what, to me, is the uh, the standard. Gold right? standard. Yeah. yeah. Can you, does it feel, that's what you got to measure up to. Like, can you feel like what, what it's like when you go into Mordor and Lord of the Rings? Uh, but All right, yeah, so what's um, next? Next, I'm really excited. Next is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Lord of the Rings. It is called The Land of Shadow. Yeah, I'm really excited for it. So I'm going to be really pumped next episode. And then uh, the rest of the podcast, I'm going to tune out and just uh, slack off the rest of the time because cool. uh, I won't be excited I'll, anymore. I'll go through some top 10 lists that I find on the internet. Great. Uh, you know, Oh, that will get me on my, that will pique my interest a bit. Maybe and then right. I'll get back into it. Yeah, great. Good call. Uh, so yeah, join us next time. Land of Shadow, book six. Oh, I'm going to shiver every time I say that. Book six, chapter two. We'll see you then.